You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance. My name is Kirsty Wallet, and I'm a founding partner of the Alliance. And this month's episode is one of heartbreaking and beautiful stories all rolled into one, I think. We'll be talking to one amazing mum from South Australia, Ella Stratton, who, after experiencing the unthinkable with her own child, Hunter, set up the Hass Foundation, a small charity supporting families with children who have life-limiting conditions. Welcome, Ella. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. So many things I want to ask you today about your organisation. But first of all, tell me a little bit about the story behind the foundation uh, and and what you went through and what inspired you to uh, create this organisation. I guess it's a fairly long story. I'll try and be as um, brief as possible. Um, Our son Hunter, which is our firstborn, was born a beautiful normal baby boy at, um, as we all hope and wish for. Um, At eight weeks old, he started showing signs of having seizures and we started a journey of uh, going down a path of a medical world and learning that he had quite a um, unusual disability and, uh, well, unique that they actually couldn't find a diagnosis for. And we started a path of caring for him and doing what we could in um, a way of, of living life to the max but doing what we could to help our new, our new world, our new way of being with a child with a disability. Um, unfortunately, five years ago, um, we were told he would never get actually past one and he, he had a good innings. It's a horrible thing to say, good innings. It's not really right. Had a, had a, um, a lot longer time with us than we expected and he got to nearly 12. Um, so he passed away five years ago and the foundation was created out of a whole host of things of caring for a severely disabled and sick child is so time-consuming mentally, physically and emotionally. Um, even though I had two other boys that are younger than Hunter, um, he took up so much space in my world and when he was gone, I had such a void in my life of purpose and um, I also felt that you gained so much knowledge about caring for a child with profound disabilities and sickness, that I felt that that was all going to go to waste if I didn't do something with all of that life experience that we had. The other aspect of wanting to start the foundation is we realised we went through one of the most heart-wrenching Uh, moments in life that you could go through but we were also very fortunate that we had wonderful family support I didn't have to work I was able to stay home and care for Hunter and my husband um, supported us Um, and we went away on wonderful family holidays and we created beautiful memories and I realized that lots of families don't get those opportunities and they're still going through the most heartbreaking situation of, of having a sick child that they know is going to pass away So I felt with all of those 
um, aspects of of being able to help, of having the knowledge of what it's like, and also having this void in time and needing um, to put my energy into a purpose again. And I, I missed Hunter so terribly that once we started the foundation in his honour, I felt as if I was with him again and I was working with him again and it, it gave me a drive. So it was very much a win-win situation for me. It gave me um, so much, but hopefully and, and main goal is to help others. Wow. I, I just it's such an incredible story. Um, but as you said, I'm sure a lot of people will have some knowledge or understanding of what you've gone through if they've had a sick child or even a sick family member, I suppose. And I must say, I had a baby earlier this year, my first, and just to listen to you talk about that and think about what you would have gone through, I think it's quite incredible to think that once Hunter wasn't with you anymore, that you wanted to help others. Um, and I picked up on you saying there too um, about the good innings, but you must have quite a, a positive um, outlook and I think be quite proactive to be able to to think of doing something like that after such tragedy. Um, it took me a good three years to get to that space though. I think the first two years I really just kind of sat in a bit of a heap to be honest. I mean, we all functioned, we all ate, we all went to school, we all did every we, – we lived life – but I don't have a huge amount of memory of that because I was in such grief and in such a space of um, confusion about what my normal, my new life was going to be like. Um, and I didn't know how to be in my new normal. So it took me quite a while to get to that point of feeling I had the strength and the energy to be able to do that. Um, and my husband was such an instigator in that, in wanting to do something in Hunter's honour and in Hunter's name. Um, and to begin with, I, I wasn't ready to think or even put my head into any of that. And it took me quite a while to be able to um, think clearly to even know where to start or what to do and how to even um, take the first steps to, to start the foundation. And um, it organically happened in the end, So, but it wasn't a overnight process. It, it did take me a while to, to work my way through that. So with that in mind, I suppose really that experience you went through positions you perfectly to be able to support other families. So tell me a little bit more about what the foundation does now to support families. Um, I know that you're at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide and connected with them. So how does it actually work on the ground? Well, the interesting thing, um, people don't have a lot of knowledge about what paediatric palliative care actually looks like. We've all got a connotation of palliative care in the aged sector that we know that that's the last week or two that, you know, grandma or grandpa go and they go into a hospice and they pass away. And that's really what our and that was my my thoughts of palliative care as well, which I was so scared about. But what the amazing people, um, the team at the Women's and Children's Hospital do, there's only a team of about six or seven of them in, in various roles, that there is no ward, there is no hospice here in Adelaide, there is no specific ward in the hospital. They actually really go out and facil facilitate and support the families at home to keep the families at home and help to make their life as easy as they can in their own environment and if they choose for their children to be at home to pass or in the hospital or how they want it 
to be. It can be very short or it could be years that the children, as we were, we were um, nearly three years with the palliative care team. And I know another family that was with eight years with the palliative team. So um, it's very individual and and very customised to each family to be able to help support them how they want to be supported. So they do an incredible job, um, these nurses and the um, counsellors and all of the different aspects that they have within the Power Care team are incredible. What we realised was lacking, well, not lacking, but we what we realised that we could help support is all those little things that they don't have the funding for or they have to go through such big hurdles to be able to get funding for and those really little things that make a big difference. So we decided that um, when you first refer to palliative care, it's a pretty horrific connotation to think that you've got to go from just being under your normal doctor and just be a part of the, the hospital system to actually sign over into the palliative care team because we all have that feeling that palliative care is the end. Yeah. Um, and so we really tried to put a lot of thought into how we could make that a little gentler for families and how we could show families that we understand and we care, and especially families that are doing it tough anyway, let alone having a child that has to go into palliative care. So we've created care packs um, when families are first referred to palliative care. So it's going to be quite bespoke in a, in the way of whichever makeup a family is, whether it's two children, three children, including the siblings and the sick child, we want to be able to make these care packs to really um, encompass the whole family and, and hope that we can cater to them all. Um, and it's a pack that the nurses can then either take out to the families when they're visiting them at home or whether they're in the hospital. And there's lots of useful items in there, practical items, but then fun things, things that you can do when you're in hospital, games, books, toys, but practical things for mum like a coffee keep cup and a water bottle, some fun socks for dad, and then vouchers in there for meals um, to a place opposite the, ho- the os- opposite the hospital so you can actually go and have a nice meal, not just hospital food, mm-hmm. um, down to um, some supermarket vouchers to, and other vouchers to the zoo and to the movies so they can go and create memories and spend some time together. Um We've created a compendium that they can keep all their hospital notes and a notepad in there because it's quite overwhelming, all the information that you get. We've down to just nice hand creams and and, um, toiletry items that the mum can use while she's in hospital with the child to nice cosy blankets to all we've got a picnic blanket that can be used as a picnic blanket or a change mat for families that have older children that find changing facilities difficult, whether it's in their car or when they're out and about for older disabled children. Um, So we've tried to think of lots of little bits and pieces that help show that we care, we get it, we understand. So that's our first program that we've been rolling out is the care packs for the families. You just celebrated your first year of the foundation so what are some of the, the key things or that you're proud of um, that you've been able to do in that first year? Um, I think getting off the ground was one of the um, we, big things. I mean, it, it took a lot of um, 
learning for me and it took a lot of um, wonderful people around us who, who donated their time for governance and um, getting all of the actual structure and system around the, the foundation to begin with. Um, so I've learned and what we've been fortunate enough to have is contacts with some wonderful people that have been very supportive and very kind in in helping us um, grow and helping us um make a difference in our first year and uh, the, the first year certainly took off a lot quicker than I was expecting the ball started rolling and I felt like I was chasing the ball for the last um, the last few months but it's That's been great. it's been fantastic that um, we were lucky enough to have a wonderful um, support with the advertiser foundation who put on an event for us that we were able to to fundraise a, a great amount of money that really helped us um, catapult into our first year, which was wonderful. So by all accounts, then you've had a successful first year. So we'd like to ask um, our interviewees on our podcast to tell us what they think um, being small but mighty means to their organisation. So I'd love to know what you think about that. But then also what is a key piece of advice you'd give to anybody else listening to this that might be in their first year or their first couple of years and are trying to get their organisation off the ground? Um, I think that I, I love the idea of the small but mighty and that's exactly how I feel that I'm sticking in my lane. You know, I, I started out with all these grand ideas and we were wonderful. We were very fortunate in having a marketing company that really fine-tuned where we wanted to be and it was that palliative care, paediatric palliative care area and really honing into what we thought would make a difference and the things that we believed um were the things that helped support us we had a beautiful community around us that cooked meals for us every time hunter went into hospital and 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 after he passed so that's something that we really want to focus on is how do we work out how we can get meals to families when they're doing it really tough so they get nutritious um wholesome comforting meals so i i think the small aspect is really honing in to what your strengths are and what your um, goals are and your values so that you can stay clear and move forward with that rather than trying to go too wide. That's what I've I've really learned throughout the first year and to not um, not spread yourself too thin and it's mm-hmm. really to stay in your lane and to try and um, focus on – those little goals at a time and the things that you know what you can do to make a difference. That's fantastic advice. And I think burnout would be a real risk for anybody in your position or anyone trying to start a small foundation or non-profit uh, because most people are working a day job as well, I think, yeah. or or living the life um, of a person um, that they're trying to help as part of their organisation, whether it's, um, you know, having a child with a disability or or a sick uh, family member or something similar. Exactly. And I've, I've been lucky enough to um, have um, thrown myself into a six-month leadership program this year that really taught me about having some boundaries and some structure about my days, that I have this mm-hmm. day and this day are my work days where I work outside of the foundation. This is my get my house, home, life, organised day, and then these are my days working on the foundation, even though 
the foundation seems to creep into every day um, (laughs) with emails and contact and, and, and definitely in my head and my thoughts, but setting some boundaries around what days I work with the foundation because for me I, it is a bit of an addiction and I do get quite engrossed in it and because I love it and I feel that um, I get a buzz out of it and I really love and enjoy it and I have so many ideas but I do have to sometimes pull myself back a little bit and say okay you've got to stop and not do that today and set some boundaries and some structure around what, when I do that work so and it's funny you say that you get a buzz out of it. The next thing I wanted to ask you was what motivates you to keep doing it every day because you are obviously highly motivated. Is it about Hunter and his memory or is it has it become more than that? I think it's both. It's definitely I feel I can't give up now. I've got this running and rolling. I can't stop it now um and also definitely in his honor and I don't want his memory to fade and I get a kick out of people talking about him or seeing his um face come up on social media and I know he would get such a kick out of that he loved attention and loved people talking to him about him and I that warms my heart that I I feel that he would be getting a kick out of that but I also feel that um it's a bit of my duty I guess to to help other people and um, put the knowledge that Hunter taught us and the way that he lived his life um, I feel that he taught us so much and gave us so much that I want to pass that on to other people and and hopefully help lots of other families and and show people that um, you can keep moving forward and that you can find some light at, in in those dark days to, to move forward. You mentioned a few of the things about Hunter in that last um, answer. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. He, he had the most stoic um, nature that was just very calming and he was, um, even though he couldn't verbally communicate, he couldn't, he was very um had lots of disabilities and he had a lot of needs but he was the most calming um content child and he had the most beautiful nature everybody warmed to him everybody wanted to hold his hand or he had lovely curly hair that they wanted to you know give him a ruffle of his hair um and he taught us so much that he was just content to be with you you know he didn't need for anything more other than to be included to be with you to talk with people and be loved, you know, which is what everybody ultimately needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And he just taught us to strip everything back and not really worry about um, all those little things and to just be with each other. And his nature just was so um, happy just to be with people that he he really – gave us a lot of strength and he never grizzled or complained so we always feel that wow with what he went through if we you know think we're doing it tough we've got to check ourselves sometimes because what he went through was um you know really heart heart wrenching and he never really grizzled or complained he just um had such a beautiful strong um caring nature Mm, that's really beautiful and I can understand why the foundation's motto then is live for the moment and love for a lifetime 
Um, so that's a, a really beautiful notion. How, how does it translate into the everyday work of the foundation? I think after Hunter passed away, we sat down and we looked at going through photos and you, you're bumbling along in life and you're living life and you're doing so many things. And we had this whole vision in our head of hospitals and, oh, you know, what he went through and this and that. And then when we sat back and we looked at all of our photos, we saw all these beautiful memories of holidays, of um, being with each other, the kids playing together going to the beach, all the things that we loved and cherished so much, which was really not what we remembered until we looked at the photos and we kind of sat back and went, wow, it was really creating memories. And those are all, th- those photos and those um, memories are all we have now. And so it's so important and that's what I just try through the foundation is please just stop, take a moment, take some photos, be with your kids and, um, you know, live in the moment and love for a lifetime because that's all you're going to have left if something ever happens it, are those memories and those cherished times together, not whether you, you know, did the washing or did the ironing or, or had a clean floor <laughs> or had a clean floor or things like that, even though I am a bit of a fuss pot with all of those things, I do admit, but, the philosophy of the foundation is how can we help families create memories and how can we help alleviate some of those little day-to-day challenges to make their journey a bit gentler. We cannot change their journey. We cannot change the outcome. We can't fix or cure what's going to happen, but how can we make it a little bit softer and gentler and help them to be able to create memories and help them to be able, uh, families be able to spend a little bit of time together and be, be able to, um, yeah, look back and hopefully have beautiful memories and beautiful photos and, and, um, remember times together so you've had a successful first year and you've been able to roll out the packs that are helping the families transition into palliative care for their children what are your goals for the next year or two or ten um what are your dreams for the foundation Oh, I've got lots of dreams Um, and I had to slow myself down a little bit this year. We're actually partnering next year with an organisation called Kids in Philanthropy um, out of Melbourne and they do a wonderful job and the program we're going to be running here is in the school, every school holidays we're going to have cooking sessions for children to come along in a commercial kitchen with a chef cooking meals that will be um, nutritious, wholesome family meals but they'll also be learning about what palliative care means what these families are going through and how just giving back can you don't have to be giving a lot of money or you don't have to be doing um raising a lot of money you can give back and be philanthropic just by cooking someone a meal and showing that you care and these meals will go to the palliative care families so we're going to be running that program every school holidays which is really exciting we can't wait for that program to um, take shape the feed the heart and soul program that we'll be um, starting in the april school holidays my next dream for next year, I'd love to get a car on the road, uh, a wheelchair accessible car to help families um, with a volunteer driver get to and from their hospital appointments because 
wheelchair accessible taxis, car parking at I'm sure most hospitals, not just the Women's and Children's Hospital, is atrocious. And if we could alleviate the time that those families have to spend going to and from and finding parks, etc., um, that would make a big difference. So that's a big goal for 2020 is to start the program and get a car on the road with some volunteer drivers to um, get families to and from appointments. Oh, what other dreams have I got? I'd love to start a podcast of our own as a resource for families to be able to gain information in a space where they don't have to be one-on-one with a counsellor or therapist. There's a lot of time in hospital or at home with a sick child and you feel quite isolated and alone. Um, So I think a podcast of hearing other families' stories or – hearing from doctors, uh, hearing from uh, mental health specialists to well-being to even down to funeral homes to, um, you know, it's a bit of a daunting thought, but it's you can have a private space that you can listen to something like that in your own time. It is easier sometimes for people. So mm-hmm. I think that a podcast would be a great tool Um for families, especially remote families as well, that can't always access um, counselling services or support services. Um, so, it's yeah. It's a tough topic that you mentioned, you know, um, child palliative care, and, and I think that came up a couple of times in your answer just then, um, and the, the cooking classes are, seem like a very innovative way to get people talking about it. But how do you – is that a barrier, do you think, and how do you tackle that with the foundation, this, um, I suppose, is there a reluctance for people to talk about the actual ins and outs of something like palliative care and in general and then for children in particular? Um, I think it's not necessarily a barrier. I think people just don't even give it a thought to mm. think that children, unfortunately, have to be in palliative care. Um, and once you actually explain it to people, people go, oh, well, of course they would have to be in that care. Um, everybody just thinks of it in an aged care sense in a hospice for the last week or two. But mm-hmm. once you actually start to talk to people about it, of course they're very compassionate and understanding and anyone that's got kids, you know, it breaks their heart to think that families have to go through that. So I just think for us really raising raising awareness that that is actually out there and that it's a service being provided and if we can make it okay to talk about it, that people don't feel uncomfortable about talking about um, death and talking about, um, you know, these sad situations, which are sad and heart-wrenching, but for these families it's their reality. So they need to have support and people around that have some awareness so that they don't feel so isolated and alone and, um, and, and by themselves. Mm. And I think you naming um, the foundation after your son Hunter is, I suppose, part of that as well. Um, you're able to talk about him and and to be open about that situation on a regular basis. Does that help your um, grieving as well? I think so. Yeah, it really does. It gives me a, a sense of, um, like I said, working with him and in my head, I go, come on, buddy, we're off to do this today and do that. And um, I feel that, you know, I have to make his his time here 
worth something and mm. I feel that um, I, if we can help make a difference and if I can create a legacy that lives on that he's remembered and he's spoken about and if that helps other people, um, you know, gain strength from that and that they realise that it's okay that unfortunately their life, the child's life, ends but it doesn't mean they end and your life doesn't end um so if hopefully we you know help one person to pull through and and realize that you can get to a new way of being um and the child's never forgotten they're never gone um they're just not in this space um i hope that that we can make a difference in that way Ella, is there any other advice or one last piece of advice you'd give to anyone who's running their own small but mighty organisation? Um, the biggest thing I had to get my head around was because I had been a stay-at-home mum for 17 years and hadn't been out in the workforce, I felt very nervous putting myself out there and I thought, I don't know how to do this or I don't know how to really run a business as such and don't know very much about IT and all of those different things and I really was quite scared and nervous and I realised that it's okay not to know those things and it's okay to ask for help and that I can say I don't know how to do that could you please do it for me please and I know my strengths and I've got to stick to my strengths and I can't be good at everything. And so asking for help and either volunteer or paying people, which I'm not very good at because I want everybody to have the same (laughs) volunteer (laughs) mentality that I do, but I think that um, that has been a huge thing for me is not being overwhelmed thinking I've got to know everything and do everything because Mm. otherwise you sort of sit not knowing where to start. Um, and and the other thing is is just taking risks. With a few things with the kids in philanthropy, I just thought, saw what they had been doing online. I thought, oh, I'll just send them an email and tell them that I'd love to talk to them about what they do. So I guess putting yourself out there a little bit and taking a few risks and not knowing what might come of it, um, you know, has been quite, amazing and just emailing people and saying I'd just like to have a coffee and a chat and the doors that have opened from that so backing yourself and taking a bit of a risk with um, putting yourself out there but I think the biggest lesson I've had and what made a big difference in us moving forward was realizing I can't do everything and that I needed to ask for help and it's okay to say I don't know how to do it and not feel silly or stupid or that's Fantastic advice, Ella. Thank you very much. And I have no doubt you're creating a legacy that uh, your son Hunter would be so proud of. And I hope um, that this episode helps his memory live on a little bit more and we can um, spread the word about the foundation. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Small But Mighty. Thank you so much for having us and I love what you guys are doing for so many organisations and I love getting online and and reading all about the the different things that people are doing. So um, thank you for helping support us all. Thank you and thank you everyone for tuning in for our latest episode of Small But Mighty. We'll be back in December for our last episode of 2019. 